26. This event is wheelchair accessible. All proceeds benefit the Life Goes On Foundation and their funding of research to find a cure for spinal cord injuries. For more info, go to lifegoesonfoundation.org. This is 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Good afternoon, and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. What emerges from the long shadows of a rainy night is as interesting as what will never see the light of day. Who are the princess and the fixers of the city of the angels? Who is the power behind the power? How does the water flow in a town where the waters mix with the blood of immigrants? Nothing is concrete in L.A. except the river. When you look at City Hall, you can see old Los Angeles, the times building across the way. And crowning the civic crucible is the L.A. Department of Water and Power. Water and Power are the nicknames given to twin brothers named Gilbert and Gabriel Garcia. From their hard scrabble roots on the city's east side to the very halls of power, they now roam and risk losing. Their father was a tough-minded irrigation man for the DWP, but he wanted more for his sons. He wanted them to be like Mr. Mulholland, deciding where the water flows in this once desert pueblo. From the mother ditch in Chinatown to a million trees on a proposed green space along the eastern edge of the L.A. River, it all hangs in the balance along with the lives of two brothers and the promises they made to the people on this dark and rainy night in Los Angeles. Their father taught them to box as children, and they danced beautifully on the back porch in the rain, with neighbors commenting how cruel. But he knew he was preparing them for tough times sure to come, and on this night, they find themselves struggling to remember and forget what father said. In this, their fateful hour, water and power. That's the new play by my guest today, Richard Montoya, who is actor, activist, playwright, and part of the acting troupe Culture Clash. He was here earlier, and I started our conversation with asking him about his own experiences trying to meet expectations by his father, renowned poet and artist Jose Montoya. I've always had larger than life, you know, father figures, you know, from my dad to my uncle Malakias, who's well known in the East Bay. And then, you know, I worked with Luis Valdez for nearly 10 years. I mean, these, these are big, these are big guys. <laughs> you know, they're, uh-huh. they, there's, there's the myth, there's the legend, there's, there's the, uh, fallible fathers that they are. You know, they're not perfect men and they, they don't, they never claim to be, you know, perfect men, but they do instill these things in us that, you know, I think that as as younger men and navigating through places like the Bay Area or Los Angeles or, you know, uh, even in a battlefield, um, you know, I think I think that we struggle to remember some of the the good things that 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 we were taught both by our moms, you know, and our fathers. And so um, 
I remember boxing for um, the high school students my dad taught. You know, we'd have to put on boxing gloves, and I have I have five other brothers, so um, you know there there was, and we were all one year apart at that time. So wow, you know, we were like little boxers and little you know gallos, you know, vying for the attention and and trying to do what was right and playing sports and and being competitive. And I think some of that is good and necessary. I think some of that prepares you for hard times. That will certainly come, but but some of it, you know, I remember my mom kind of looking on in horror and shock as my dad was teaching us the tougher lessons of life and go ahead and take a drink of my Olympia beer. And and I think the play is, is transparent in that way, that not all the advice dad is giving these boys um, is good advice. But at the moment, it's what the father knows to pass on to his sons. You describe the horror that your mother felt, and in the play, there is no mother. It's clear that the mother died at childbirth was that deliberate well i'm not trying to kill off ladies in the um in the theater or anything like that no 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 i i mean as a playwright to focus in on that male energy let's say it made sense you know that that the mother was missing that there was an absence of a woman and it is deliberate because it's precisely because the absence of a mother figure that these men find themselves in this hotel room on this awful night and so by way of doing that i actually feel throughout the play there is the presence of a woman it's mainly through the young child that's portrayed Mm -hmm. and so the mother and the feminine qualities come through the child and through the deer dancer which is a spiritual element and, and a yearning for a balance in life and so these men when we see them on this particular night their life is out of balance had there been a mother um in that bad hour it would have been probably had gone better for water and power but yeah um in la we had a very very strong uh, director named lisa peterson who's very well known um as a very very strong feminista type director and she really urged me to not try to you know apologize or to you know bring a, a woman character in the play unless it really served the story and i'd have to say that she was right it's mm-hmm. it, it the audience should really feel like man had there been a mother there these guys would one of these guys would still be alive you know and i and i kind of feel that's true mm-hmm. yeah. a lot of times in society i think that men are only afforded anger as an emotion and it's not even that emotion so i felt like it was really powerful to see the whole variety of emotions mm-hmm. within men it felt like that was very intentional so. it is and i appreciate you noting that because i've really uh, have been working hard with this group of very talented actors in the show and uh, i think people in in the bay area will be really really pleased to see the level of acting from there's we have local actors and we have los angeles actors i've had to work hard to get them to trust the idea that this play can be calm and it can be still and it can be reflective in some areas that's kind of hard for us to look at ambition ethics when do we cross the line you know and do any of those what are the various shades of color and the complexities as those things relate to to chicanos to latinos you know i I think that we are we have a different skill set different things that we were taught you know uh August Wilson, one of my favorite African-American playwrights, would would uh, hold that, you know, an African-American household is different than an Anglo household. And mm-hmm. it's different than, a, a you know, when, when my dad's mom, you know, when all they had were frijoles and, 
she made the frijoles, and then she would roll up the the paper that the grapes would dry on from the fields to make raisins, and she would snatch a few pieces of paper to take home so her children could draw at night. That that could only happen in a few households. That only happened in the fields. That only happened with that generation of Mexican-Americans. And I think that, that in, in so much of the 90s, we were so desperate to say, you know, that, you know, we are one and we're multicultural. And I'm all for that. But I'm also for dissecting and looking at those things that also made us uniquely Chicano or Mexican-American. Because... Um, in Los Angeles and San Diego, many, many uh, audience members were African-American and Anglo, and they really love seeing this window into our private world. You know, not the world on display, not when I'm in the streets marching, but what do I say, you know, in 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 the privacy of our homes, what is spoken about? And I think that Water and Power endeavors to pull the lid back a little bit uh, in the way that... Um, some of the great, hopefully some of the really good filmmakers that I admire so much do. You mentioned August Wilson and you make reference to his work and the ability to walk in the shadows. Talk about your influences in that ability to to walk in the shadows. Well, let me see. I've been fortunate, you know, in my life and, you know, both parents uh, were educators before they retired. My mother, you know, 30 years in the Sacramento uh, unified school district and and then my dad you know being the poet and the retired professor and and really in the 60s and 70s um my father was a union organizer for the united farm workers union and working very very um closely with cesar directly and then whatever political campaign came through i remember when uh robert kennedy uh junior came through rfk came through um, our little town in Northern California. Um, he flew into the little tiny airport. You know, my dad had, you know, six little Montoya kids front and center <laughs> as Robert Kennedy came off the plane. And, you know, thinking back and looking at that little photo uh, strip of that moment, um, for some reason, RFK was pulled to these, you know, six little children, and he came right to us. He probably probably missed his own children, you know, because he saw six little well-scrubbed, you know, Chicanitos right in the front, and he came right over and shook everyone's hand. And and my dad took pictures of the whole thing, you know, because my dad was quite the shutterbug. And, um, and you know, uh, Robert Kennedy died later that night. And I remember, I remember that as a child. I remember that my folks were having a campaign party at the house and I would, no one understood why my dad started crying at, you know, one at night or one thirty and wow. and there was Dolores Huerta in the in the television picture and mm-hmm. these become um, not just important Chicano moments, these are moments in American history. I don't know, it's nights like that that you don't forget. I was telling um the gentleman in the play the other night that, that uh to understand Latino police officers is was really difficult for me because I grew up in a household where, you know, the cops were called pigs and, and you know, m- very much in the 60s and 70s when, you know, we were uh, very busy uh, following my parents around protesting, you know, everything from grapes to lettuce to you know, police brutality. So in the last five years in Los Angeles, there, you know, uh, 
I live pretty close to the cathedral in downtown L.A., which is right next to the Mark Taper Forum, which is right next to walking distance from where I live, not far from Dodger Stadium. Um, Remind me, you're in Echo Park? Echo Park, yeah. yeah. Angelino Heights, actually. Mm-hmm. little tiny neighborhood of Victorian um, turn-of-the-century homes. Mm-hmm. And uh, So I can actually walk to Dodger Stadium a couple times a year to see a ball game. I can walk to the Taper when we're working there. But anyway, um, th- there was a Latino uh, police officer, a sheriff deputy that actually died in the line of uh, duty. And um, actually, he was a friend of a friend. I mean, and that's Los Angeles. It's all kind of interconnected. So I went to that funeral for the sheriff's deputy, and I, I was terribly moved because, um, mostly because his parents were there, and they were, you know, Mexican immigrants, and they looked a lot like my grandparents and began to kind of tear down those years and years of, you know, just looking at cops as um, enforcers of brutality. I just, you know, I saw that there was a a young Latino that was way too young, you know, and so I, I began to kind of see cops differently because I was writing the central character for the play that was was a cop and and not just a monster because I think the monster cop is kind of a stereotype in a way mm-hmm. and I wanted to get underneath this guy and find out what really made him tick and what really made him move and and the fact that he was from the housing projects from the east side uh, factors it's huge it's a huge part of how he carries himself and what he does and the fact that he goes over the line and that he commits a crime, um, that's part of the story also. But the fact that he's a Chicano cop to me is, is, is very important. You just heard the voice of playwright and actor Richard Montoya. We're talking about the production of his play, Water and Power, that is closing Teatro Vision's 25th anniversary season. The play about two brothers struggling to remember promises made to the people, Water and Power, is co-directed by Richard, as well as Herbert Siguenza, and will be running through March 29th. For more information, you could go to www.teatrovision.org. I'm Amelia Gonzalez, and we go back to our conversation with Richard Montoya here on Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. You're talking about a price to pay for being a cop and or a price to pay for being a senator. Do you think that we're limited in the, the options of the games that we have to play, that political game, the making it game? Well, I mean, a bit, you know, but of course, you know, um, I worked really hard on the um, Obama campaign, and um, um, it was really amazing to be part of that history and a part of that change. Um, and so I don't know that that's going to make things, you know, easier. Um, what I'm hoping and what I'm seeing from President Obama is that the bar is being raised. I mean, he's pretty stellar, you know, and... Well, the bar was pretty low. It was. It was, it was low. Um, and the local politics in Los Angeles is, is, you know, there was a machine that built a lot of this. And we're seeing the success of that from Fabian, you know, to Antonio, the mayor, to Gil Cedilla, to Hilda Solis, to, you know, there is a machine in place. And while we applaud and celebrate the successes i was also very interested in looking at the moments where we crossed the line because um 
from the Orange County Sheriff to the Chicago Alderman to Elliot Spitzer to, you know, we have a long list of people that um, are under indictment or <laughs> heading in that direction. And I'm fascinated by why we risk everything for the news anchor on Channel 52 or for, you know, things that are relatively small and we're willing to risk all of that everything that you've been taught everything that you've learned everything that you've gained for shortcuts or ambition that interests me not just to fan the flames or to be negative but i don't i think that it's never too late or too early for a cautionary tale the jewish storytellers did that the irish american storytellers did that you know the godfather is a large cautionary tale and somehow i find that with latinos and hispanic writers like there's this constant pressure to be positive and to only talk about you know the professionals and and that's fine but it's it's my ba- my bailiwick is is to uh, uh, more of a transparency and 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 I want to examine things so that we can avoid them for for other generations and and so that there can be twenty obamas and and twenty gilsadios and twenty Hilda Solises and you know we need to fill up the ranks also with mm-hmm. with but I think in order to get to that positive area we 've got to examine where we 've been, and we shouldn 't be afraid of that. But I wanted to go back to Water and Power and having people know that it's the third of a three-play cycle of works about California. The other two being Zorro and Hell, which was uh, great. I saw that. That was performed here at the Berkeley Rep and Chavez Ravine, a docudramedy about the displacement of a community in Los Angeles to make room for Dodger Stadium. I wanted you to talk about the research that goes into doing these uh, type of pieces it's massive it's really massive i mean we 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 kind of create a a large database sometimes the research and the files and and everything that we do i remember for chavez ravine um all the documents that we pulled up from the past uh, had to have its own dressing room that's how much information there was so we share a dressing room and then all the information is like in a library, like in the next dressing room, because we have to have it at our disposal at all mm-hmm. times to check and double check. And, you know, at the same time, we're not we're not trying to publish a historical document. It, it is the theater. It is it is, uh, you know, we do take liberty and we do take license. And, uh, you know, you want those elements that are also going to be um, part of a show. And and so we'll take license, but for the most part, we're not only trying to get um, the facts straight, but as uh, Dr. Rudy Acuna, one of our foremost scholars at Cal State Northridge, uh, really reminds us with the historical work uh, not to romanticize um, the history. And what he meant by that, it was specifically Chavez Ravine, um, was to really try to get the story as accurate as we could. Yes, people were displaced, <clears throat> and, and the barrio was destroyed to make room for Dodger Stadium. But if we simply went out there and said the Dodgers kicked out the Mexicans, it wouldn't be accurate. 
you'd have to go 20, 30 years prior to the Dodgers ever arriving in Los Angeles. And there was a housing authority, and the McCarthyism swept through the housing authority. And people were displaced and moved out, but some of those people made out really well. There was a family that owned 13 homes in Chavez Ravine. Um, and then there were people that fought, and there was a good fight, and that was the very beginning of a very progressive movement in Los Angeles. Uh, with the young Chicanos and, a, and an older uh, Jewish American enclave that really um, taught us how to fight in the courts and how to take our battles uh, through the legal system and working hand in hand with people like Fred Ross, whose son lives here in the East Bay, and Saul Alinsky, and then you'll find the beginning of Cesar Chavez intertwined in that story. And that's what I mean about the danger of romanticizing and, and sentimentalizing. When we do that, we kind of zap the the part of the story that tells us how much hard work it was, how incredibly difficult those times were. When we put the patina of, of nostalgia over it, 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 it kind of, uh, we can rob ourselves of, of the truly uh, breathtaking, difficult work that, that a lot of that stuff took. Uh, we've also been very uh, lucky to work with uh, really amazing directors. Like I'm thinking about Tony Tacconi just down the street here at Berkeley mm, Rep. Right. And, you know, that's really where it starts also. And so uh, Zorro, uh, we had such a great run here, you know, just down the street. And, uh, um, and, and so that's really worth mentioning because because it's still a cauldron where 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 work can be born and uh Tacconi is just a, a kind of a monster in terms of uh his approach to a work he's unrelenting and so we've been fortunate to work with people like Tony and Lisa Peterson and and now that we're co-directing these works I I remember a lot of how they worked with us and I try to uh be as relenting uh as as they were with us but uh you know we look forward with uh you know bringing back another work um, to Berkeley Rep, I don't. I don't think Water and Power. Uh, I think Water and Power is probably a better fit at Teatro Vision. It feels really nice down there, and uh, we really just want to invite all the people that love us at Berkeley Rep to just take a little trip down the 880 and, and come and see a, a really interesting piece down there. And then in the future, we'll probably bring something back up here to work with our friends at the Rep. So much of what I learned at Berkeley Rep. Um, I wanted to take with me to Teatro Vision, and I found nothing but openness and a willingness at Teatro Vision. Uh, as as one of the comadres told me last night, like you know, we're raising the bar. You know, we we have to raise the bar to a level of professionalism uh, that's on par with ACT and Berkeley Rep. And a lot of that I learned from uh, Senor Taconi over here. Just like be. Just be fierce and brutal, and when you see Water and Power at Teatro Vision, it it just looks like it was at the Mark Taper Forum or or anywhere else, and we have to be at that level, and and Teatro right. Vision is mm -hmm. ready for it and wants it. Right, mm -hmm. because we're capable. That's right, comadre. <laughs> so Water and Power is described as a dark drama. Ooh. What? Was it difficult to make that transition from comedy to drama? No, uh, you know our work really, really changed. Around 1993, 94, and we started dealing with the fact that Ricardo Salinas had been shot in the Mission District in San Francisco. Right. Um, we had to give ourselves permission to to take long uh, journeys into 
into the heart of darkness because it just we just could not tell our stories simply with comedy or physical sketch or scatological humor uh, life was not that way life was very serious one day and very comedic the next or my god from moment to moment you know so um especially with the um the beginning of the three play cycle i think that that i know individually myself i was very interested in and really kind of killing off the notion of culture clash as a you know comedia troupe or you know uh-huh. we're going to do comedy with culture clash and uh-huh. because if you don't you get boxed in a corner and you're not really getting taken seriously and everywhere you go it's like you know as funny as a jalapeno and right. there's always these right, food right. references and it's like you know we're not talking about any of that we're actually closer to sam shepherd we're actually closer to a dark root of a scream we're actually closer to going down these avenues and these these tributaries that allow us to more fully tell our story other than just comedy now we rely there's a lot of humor in water and power and i think that that really catches people a little bit off guard there's, right there are yeah. laughs from beginning to end but mm-hmm. it's not it's not humor that comes out of a joke you know but um bump it's a it's a it's a dark humor that comes out of a character or a situation and that's what i saw with my dad and my uncles and people like man the the stuff could be hitting the fan but there's you know out of that out of those tough tough moments comes an ability to laugh, you know, right. an ability right. to see something um, a little differently. Like my dad said when they were kids, the the relief lady would come to the little, you know, house, you know, and all the little kids are making fun of the welfare lady, you know, as she's putting down their mom, you know, and right. that's a survival tactic. Mm-hmm. That's an ability mm-hmm. to look at something and, and see it from different dimensions, and I hope that the play is successful in doing that. I did want to talk about comedy, because comedy is difficult, and I don't think that people really appreciate uh, that idea of uh, comedy being difficult and also what you mentioned about humor humor is um, sometimes used and I think you used it very well in the play where you're able to talk about difficult subject matter and have it be maybe more palatable do you find yourself doing that Mm. or is it just just comes naturally it just comes you know natural I I frankly like when an audience is, you know, somewhat uncomfortable and and not not sugarcoat stuff, but let it hit with a kind of a brute force. And in the next moment, you know, there's a moment in the play where the audience gets pretty darn quiet, you know, and mm-hmm. and two men are basically dancing together, and mm-hmm. there's nervous. It's it's such a range of emotions for the audience. There's nervous laughter and there's titters and. Oh my God! There's two men dancing, and then and then suddenly it becomes something kind of beautiful and kind of calm and kind of still. And then there's an exchange of words, and it's like it makes all the sense in the world that that this is happening. And then we completely just bust it up with with you know a, a funny line, and the audience needs to go through that range of emotions. That I want the audience to leave as if though they went through a ringer also. And that they saw an incredible array of emotions and they participated in it, not just as a distant observer. And I was reminded last night watching the show and we had a lot of young uh, high school kids. We had a lot of um, at-risk kids. We had university students from Cal. We had educators. We had people from the community. 
and I just I was overwhelmed last night. I got felt myself getting a little emotional, not so much from what I was watching on stage, but how the audience was reacting to it. I felt it was their story. Their story is being told, and they just related to so much of it. They were so with some of these characters last night. Norte Sur Simon is was uh, an amazing character. Simon Luca. <laughs> I, well, I think it was important to to take a, a, a character that most of us might look at as someone we'd want to get away from the second we saw them. Uh, in the play, Norte Sur is his name translated is literally North South, but he's a homeboy in a wheelchair. You know, a veterano of the streets that. Uh, the media has been uh, very good and very quick to just, you know, label a gangbanger and a thug and someone mm-hmm. that should be behind bars. And uh, in the beginning of the play, I want the audience to kind of uh, make that calculation in their head. But by the end of the night, you know, it, it's like if this guy in the wheelchair, Norte Sur, if he if he ends up becoming our moral compass in the end, it's it's really kind of fascinating and. For me, it's not romanticized because my dad's basically a vato loco, you know, and and some of our vato locos are academics, and some of them are locas, and some of them are, you know, and I've seen guys on the street like like Norte Sur that have turned their life around and working with Father Boyle there in, in, in East Los Angeles. Right. He's turned so many of those guys around, you know, without denigrating, without condoning or condemning what made them that way, just how do we get you to a better place? And Norte Sur makes that transition in the piece, and our hearts are really with him in the end. And he was the kind of the scourge of the night, ends up becoming this kind of connective tissue that reconnects the brothers' water and power back together. Richard Montoya, thank you so much for Thank you for having me so much. That's the voice of actor, playwright, and member of renowned acting troupe, Culture Clash, Richard Montoya. And we've been talking about the production of his play, Water and Power, that is closing Teatro Vision's 25th anniversary season. The play will be running through March 29th at the Mexican Heritage Plaza that is located at 1700 Alum Rock in San Jose. Showings are Thursdays through Saturday at 8 p.m. and Sundays at 2 in the afternoon. For tickets and information, you can call area code 408-272-9926 or you can go to www.teatrovision.org.